Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hey there, and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. Today we present part one of two interviews with Robert B., Professor Emeritus of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UC Berkeley. Dr. B served as an engineer with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Shell Oil, Shell Development, and Royal Dutch Shell. His work has taken him to more than 60 locations around the world. His engineering work has focused on marine environments, while his research and teaching have focused on risk assessment and management of engineered systems. He's a co-founder of the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management at UC Berkeley. In Part 1, Safety and Risk Management are discussed. Bob B., welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You're part of the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management. How did that get started, and what's the mission? What's the goal? (laughs) Well, it got started on an airplane coming to California from New Orleans, Louisiana, November 2005. On the plane with me was Professor Raymond C., Department of Civil Environmental Engineering. We had been in the early days after Katrina, New Orleans flooding. They were still dragging bodies out of the attic. And coming back, our thinking was, well, why couldn't we help found a group here at Berkeley that would bring together interdisciplinary professionals, both in the academic environment and outside, to address catastrophic potential failures, disasters, in two frameworks. One, after they happen, and two, before they happen. After, the intent is not blame, shame, or hurt, but rather to learn deeply how they happen. So then you can bring it back to prevention, mitigation. So we got off the plane, met with our dean, Dean Sastry, and said, could you tell us how to become a center here at Berkeley? I'll never forget it. He got up from his desk, walked around to the other side, touched me on the left and right shoulders, and said, you're a center. That's how the center happened. And today, the center continues to exist under the leadership of Professor Carlene Roberts and continuing to address a wide variety of accidents that have happened and ones we are working to help not happen. Thank you, Berkeley. And the funding is? Very interesting question. Initially, we thought, well, we'll turn to the university for funding. That was not as easy as some of us thought because the university was already seriously stretched for funding, just funding itself. So at that point, we turned two directions. First direction, principally because of my background, was to industry and said, hey, industry, would you fund research here 
in return for your research funding. We'll give you great students with great research backgrounds and research results. They became excellent funders. We turn to government, Homeland Security, for example, or the National Science Foundation, similar responses. So the funding has come from both industry, commerce, and government. Essentially, all we've had to ask the university for, and it's been a precious resource to even ask for, has been space and support staff. Are there any of the center's projects that you'd want to talk about? There's, I think, two. One was a Center for Catastrophic Risk Management project at its inception, San Bruno PGE, a disaster. Certainly to the people that were close to Line 132 that exploded, we followed that disaster from the day it started and carried it all the way through the federal investigations, the state investigations, and drew from that very, very important lessons, preventative lessons. The other project that has been playing out sort of in sequence with it is in San Pedro, California, the San Pedro low-pressure gas storage facilities. It's in a neighborhood, and you can see these large gas storage tanks. You can see roads nearby. You can see Walmart and shopping centers and schools and hospitals and homes. And you'd say, this sounds pretty dangerous. Founded back in the 1950s period, it's pretty old, kind of like Bob B., pretty old and worn out. And it suffered what we call risk creep which means when they built the tanks and the facilities there, there weren't any people. There was a port to import the gas, so forth. But suddenly we've got now densely packed, I'll call it political, social, community infrastructure system, which if you blow up those tanks, we've got big trouble, Houston. Well, we took on San Pedro in an attempt to help the homeowners, the people that actually live there, draw a call appropriate attention to the hazard so that they could get appropriate evaluation, mitigation. We haven't been very successful. I think many people say, well, it hasn't blown up. It's not going to blow up. Other people who say, I think I smell gas and an explosion is not far behind. And then you turn to the state regulation system and say, well, who's responsible Answer everybody, nobody. And at that point, it sinks back into the everyday activity of that community and our society. So, one horrible experience. We learned a lot of lessons, and I'm watching PG&E and our California Public Utilities Commission go through the learning experiences, and they're obviously painful. But on the preventative side, our record is looking pretty dismal. Yeah, that's tough. It's similar to the Chevron fire that was in Richmond because you're right. These things get built when they're far away and then developers build right up to them. Same with airports and all sorts of facilities. The Chevron refinery is one of our latest investigation. 
And it's got a story behind it because one of the stalwart sponsors of work that's been done by the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management has been Chevron. In fact, they were a member of a 10-year study that we conducted here concerning how organizations manage very high-risk systems successfully. Chevron was one of the successful organizations. So when we saw Richmond go poof, boom, we said, something's changed. They had a sterling record for their operations here. What happened? Well, the story comes that this business of risk assessment management of these complex systems is one damn thing after another. And if you get your attention diverted like, oh, my God, we need to make more money, you start diverting precious human resources working to achieve safety, then safety starts to degrade. And at that point, rusty pipes will only stay rusty so long. At that point, poof, boom. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Brad Swift is interviewing Bob B., a civil and environmental engineer at UC Berkeley. In the next segment, they talk about collaboration. Talk about some of the people you've collaborated with and the benefits that flow from that kind of work. That's been one of the real blessings of my life has been collaboration. One of the things that in dealing with complex problems and systems I'm most afraid of is myself. I'm afraid of myself because I know I'll think about something in a single way, and I'll think about it from the knowledge I have, and then I'll develop a solution or insight to how something happens given that set of intellectual tools. And so I've learned to be afraid of myself when I get very comfortable is when I have people who don't think like me, who will, in fact, listen to me. And then respectfully, when I finish, they say, Bob, you're wrong. Here's why. And then, of course, I'll rock back and I say, "Okay, explain some more. Let's let's get there. And what I have found inevitably is I end up at a different point than where I started which tells me the power of collaboration can be extremely strong as long as collaboration is knowledgeable and respectful. If it gets to be ignorance at work and it's disrespectful, you can expect Bob to become pretty nasty. In reflection on your activities in civil engineering and in academia, does civil engineering need to change in some way, or is there a subtle change happening that you recognize? I think there's subtle change happening, and I'm proud to say I think I see it starting to sprout here at Berkeley. The change that's happening is one that you struck on with your earlier question concerning collaboration. So it turns out to be the power of civil engineering collaboration. We've actually got people in engineering working with people in political science, public health, business, 
That is an extremely encouraging sign, as long as we can keep that collaboration going in the right directions. If you can do that, do it well, then this symphony of disasters and accidents will hear that music go down a lot. You sort of made famous the Civil Engineering Course 180, <laughs> and you're not teaching that anymore, right? That's correct. Did you pass it on to someone you know and give them the blessing? I tried to. Yeah. CE-180, Engineering Systems, is what it was called, I think was teachable for me because of the experiences I had. I came here after 35 years, 36 years of industry work. And I've been working as a laborer since I was 14. Went to work as a roofer, a roofing crew in Florida. I'm not too smart. And so I was able to bring that background of experience into the classroom and virtually I turned the students loose. I said, what I want you to do is first form into teams. Well, uh, here at Berkeley, we tend to be what I call a star system. Student is independent. They've got to be the best in the class. Working together is something not encouraged. Well, I would say, tell with a star system, we're going to work as a team. So teamwork came in, and that's because I had very strong training through the Harvard Executive Master of Business Administration program on teamwork and organization and that kind of stuff. So I brought that in and then said, well, you've had all of this technical stuff. Get out of Berkeley, go out there, meet the real people, meet some real experts outside of the Berkeley experts, and go solve problems. So essentially, I turned them loose, but I kept them from hurting themselves. It worked beautifully. Well, notice you can't then turn back to normal Berkeley faculty and say, teach it. It's not reasonable because they've not had that experience. You could think about team teaching, but then you'd say, well, Bob, we have trouble with enough funding to teach with one person in a class, much less team teaching. So I sort of agreed with myself to hope somebody remembers and when the university has more resources, they could, in fact, return to these kinds of real-life experience classes. The students that came through that set of experiences have made some remarkable contributions already. Good kids. Has anyone approached you about doing any of this online teaching? Yes. And I have steadily said no. The reason is a saying that I was given by a very dear friend, a collaborator, University of Washington at Seattle, said to me one day, Bob, Engineers want to believe the planet is not inhabited. We don't like people. We're antisocial. Go to a party and you can tell it immediately. We're in a corner, you know, talking boring shop. Well, I don't want to contribute to e-offline internet generation of engineers who don't know how to work with each other eyeball to eyeball, deliberating intellectual things in the classroom outside the classroom. So I haven't been very supportive. We need more human contact. Spectrum is a 
Public Affairs Show on KLX Berkeley. Our guest is Professor Bob B. of UC Berkeley. In the next segment, they speak about safety. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? One of the things that as I leave my career period and my career at Berkeley that makes me sad for Berkeley really got my attention during the Macondo disaster. Many good friends that I still have at BP that were in fact involved in the causation of the accident kept saying, well, what we did we thought was safe. The thing that makes me sad is we still do not have a course to teach engineers what the word means and how to quantify it so that then people can look at it and say, this is acceptable. Those people could be from the school of law or public health. This kind of risk management's not happening here. That's sad. And I can look forward, I think all of us can, to continuing problems in this area because of the lack of appropriate education. The engineering thinking, in many cases, is devoid of explicit thinking about uncertainties, variability, and is devoid of thinking intensely about the potential effects of human malfunctions. The engineer goes through a career of saying, the weld will be done according to specifications. Uh, there's where it pops up. The engineer's education is one that deals with an imaginary world. There is no significant uncertainty. You sort of, by code specification or however, inspection, do away with that, and things will be done perfectly. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It's not. The human factor. The human factor. <laughs> Given that there's always going to be that human factor, risk management seems to be a quandary of the open-endedness of it. When do you feel you've done enough of it? When do you feel confident that you're ready to say, yes, I'm prepared for all circumstances? No one can know all things, yet at the same time you do as much as you can, or what can you afford, right? It comes down to the money side of it again. Not quite. Love your question. I got on this while I was here, so I didn't come in here knowing this one. When I came in to this risk assessment management, got into the depths of it, I had to do a lot of reading. And the reading I was doing coming from many different industries and parts of the world said, oh, well, risk assessment management, uh, proactive, think before, predict, just like you were saying. But the flaw in that is you can't predict everything. But they never said it. Okay. And the next thing he said was, it's reactive. So that when something bad happens, you reflect on it, learn from it, and you manage the consequences. Well, I'm sitting here, and by the way, I came here without a PhD, but I got one ultimately. I introduced interactive management. And I'm sitting at home trying to think how to do something for a PhD dissertation that's new. And I said, well, if there's proactive and there's reactive, they've got to be interactive. How in the hell can I learn about this? And I end up working with two pediatric emergency room management teams. A baby team, I called them, at Loma Linda Hospital, Los Angeles. The other, San Francisco General. 
mortality rate, same number of beds in their emergency room wards, was a factor of 10 higher at San Francisco. So we went and observed them, students with me, and we started to learn about interactive management. The baby can't tell you what's wrong with it. And yet the medical team has to be able to diagnose it, invoke corrective action to save the life. And the success shows up in mortality. So we got deep into that, and that entered interactive management. Okay? Story goes on, we're working with commercial aviation, U.S. Air, United Airlines, and Southwest Airlines. U.S. Air comes to a confidential meeting and says, well, we found out why we had five fatal accidents five years in a row. We had given our flight crews instructions. They were to leave the gate on time, without exception. Well, the five that had crashes did the checkout on the taxi out. Two of them found out they didn't have enough fuel to make the next airport unless they had tailwinds. And, of course, they had headwinds. Well, that experience in this interactive management, a guy shows up at our doorstep here by the name of Sully Sullenberger. And he's learning about what we have been learning, he's heard through U.S. Air, about this interactive management. Boy, did we carry him through it, and boy, did he carry us through it. Perfect example of how you can prepare a very complex hazardous system to succeed in the face of failure. What they did that morning, and he sent me an email that morning before they took off from LaGuardia, when they took off, lost both engines, totally not predictable, did the scan of the alternative airports and what would happen if they didn't have enough flight path to make it, turned toward the Hudson and pulled off that was totally prepared for including design of back water backflow valves through the air intakes into the airbus. He knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Look at the flight inclination of the plane coming into the river. It looks like barefoot skiers, toes up. <laughs> There's the power of the thinking. So you do end up measuring safety. Just as you say, you're never sure you got the speedometer right. Something could happen out of the blue. Somebody walks across the street that's not supposed to. You then have to have the ability to get through the system quickly and have the correct response. That's part of risk assessment and management. Unfortunately, BP never learned it before Maconda. So that when it really hit hard, and it hit hard that night, they couldn't respond. They froze, and they killed the 11 people that way. Yeah. I read the report that you did on that, and I was like, pot boiler. It's really riveting stuff. Yep. It's an amazing tale. Yep. <laughs> it makes me so I want to go sailing. <laughs> you sail in the bay? Yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. I've taken the boat to Mexico. Uh-huh. Taken it to the Channel Islands twice. I'm a single-handed sailor. Oh, really? Oh, Yeah. I've lost some ass once. <laughs> That's an exciting tale about disaster preparation. <laughs> yeah, I guess sailing alone is a good sort of uh, oh, risk management, uh, hands-on. 
practice. And the reason you'd say, but come on, Bob, you got to be somewhat human. I've learned when I sail, I can only sail, which means I can't think about Katrina or BP or San Bruno. I've got to focus totally on that boat and sailing. If not, I, I ask kick quick. So it's a relief. And that's why you do the solo? Yeah. Rather than have other people on board? Because exactly. then you get sloppy. I'm get entertaining sloppy, and I'm getting sloppy yeah. and et cetera. Yeah. And so most of my sailing is done solo. If you're interested in the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management and its riveting reports, visit the website ccrm.berkeley.edu. To listen to any and every past episode of Spectrum for free, visit our archive on iTunes University. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. Now two of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Chase, Yakubowski, and I present the calendar. This Tuesday, November 19th, the SF Ask a Scientist Lecture Series will present a talk by neuroscientist Adam Gaisley and magician Robert Strong. From ancient conjurers to big-ticket Las Vegas illusionists, magicians have been expertly manipulating human attention and perception to dazzle and delight us. The team will demonstrate how magicians use our brains as their accomplices in affecting the impossible and explain what scientists can learn about the brain by studying the methods and techniques of magic. The event will take place on Tuesday, November 19th at 7 p.m. in Stanford's Geology Corner Auditorium, room number 105 in building number 320 of Stanford's main quad. This Wednesday, November 20th, the UC Berkeley Archaeological Research Facility will host a seminar on indigenous foodways and landscape management. Since 2007, a multidisciplinary research team has been working to implement an eco-archaeological approach to explore indigenous landscape management on the central coast of California. This presentation includes results of a study associated with UC Berkeley graduate student Rob Cuthrell's dissertation research, which takes a historical ecological approach to integrating major sources of data, including fiery ecology of contemporary landscapes and results of macrobotanical analysis of indigenous settlements. The event is open to all audiences and will be held on November 20th from 12 to 1 p.m. in room 101 of the Archaeological Research Facility on the UC Berkeley campus. And now... Chase Yakubowski with our news story. This story is from the UC Berkeley News Center. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. For nearly two decades after Japanese researchers first discovered CRISPR in bacteria in 1987, scientists mostly dismissed it as junk DNA. Far from being junk, CRISPR was actually a way of storing the genetic information of an invading virus in the form of palindromic DNA sequence. The bacteria use this genetic information to target the viral invader by chopping it up with powerful CRISPR-associated enzymes capable of cleaving its DNA molecule, just like a pair of molecular scissors. The mystery of CRISPR was resolved by Jennifer Doudna of the University of California, Berkeley, a specialist in RNA. About seven years ago, Doudna was asked by a university colleague to look into this genetic particularity of bacteria, and quickly became fascinated. The more we looked into it, the more it seemed extremely interesting, Professor Doudna said. Then, in 2011, she met Emmanuel Carpentier of Ume University in Sweden at a scientific conference. 
Professor Carpentier told Professor Dana of another kind of CRISPR system that seemed to rely on a single gene, called CAS9. Both professors collaborated on the project, and in August last year published what is now considered the seminal paper showing that CAS9 was an enzyme capable of cutting both strands of DNA double helix at precisely the point dictated by a programmable RNA sequence. In other words, an RNA molecule that could be made to order. It has worked beautifully on plants and animals. Professors Doudna and Charpentier had found the holy grail of genetic engineering a method of cutting and stitching DNA accurately and simply anywhere in a complex genome. I'm tremendously excited about the possibility of this discovery having a real impact on people's lives. Maybe it will offer the opportunity to do therapeutics that we've not been able to do in the past, Professor Doudna said. Her team is already working on possible ways of using the CAS9 system to disrupt the damaging chromosomes responsible for Down syndrome or the extra repetitive sequences of DNA that lead to Huntington's disease. What's exciting is that you can see the potential, and it's certainly going to drive a lot of research to try to explore it as a potential human therapeutic tool. Don't forget to tune in next week to hear part two of Professor B's interview. He and Brad Swift will discuss the California Delta and Shoreline Retreat. The music heard during this show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx.com at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.